Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. It's really a great pleasure to have Lisa Stone on the podcast from Parenting Aces. She is fantastic. She has really kept up with her consistency in the tennis world in both her podcast and just overall contributing to help a lot of parents and players really know uh, what's going on and how they can uh, elevate their careers. So I really appreciate, first and foremost, all the work that you've been doing for the tennis community, Lisa, and thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Mirvan. It's a pleasure. Yeah, same same here, Lisa. And it, it's very interesting for me to figure out or find out how individuals got into the game. And I, I did actually listen to a couple of podcasts, I think an interview with Great Shots and also just a couple of your episodes to get your background. So I kind of know about it, but just to introduce you to the Tennis Files community, can you tell us a bit about how you ended up in the world of tennis? Sure. So I grew up in a tennis family. My dad has been playing tennis his whole life and he went all through the juniors. He played at Tulane. He was on a national championship team there. And now at age 83, he continues to play singles, which is pretty awesome. So for me and my brothers, tennis was just kind of what we were going to do growing up. Uh, we were all three introduced to the sport and all kind of were involved at different levels along the way. I actually stopped playing after my freshman year of high school. I played on my high school team my freshman year. Actually, and who was on my team is Pat and Patty Harrison. Pat is Ryan and Christian Harrison's dad. Patty's their aunt, Pat's twin sister. And we grew up together in Shreveport, Louisiana, and we're on a high school team together. But like I said, I quit after my freshman year, didn't pick up a racket for a really long time until I had children and started getting them involved in tennis, just with lessons in my neighborhood at the neighborhood courts. And I have three kids and my youngest, my son is the only one who really kind of glommed onto the sport and got involved heavily and stayed involved heavily in the sport. When he was a freshman in high school, I started parenting aces because I, as the tennis parent, was looking for information to help him attain his goals that he had set for himself with his tennis. And really, there was no place for me to go as a parent to get the information I needed. So after kind of stumbling on a Facebook group filled with tennis people that were giving me some great, great advice, one of them suggested that I put everything up on a website. So Parenting Aces was born. That's an awesome, you know, background on on how you started everything and, and got into tennis as well. Did you have any sort of a fear of like actually starting a website where you'd be, you know, thrust into the, the, the public, so to speak, and all that? Was there any fear about doing that? No, I had done that before in another industry and so had 
experience, you know, writing and putting information out for mass consumption. And so, yeah, that, that part wasn't scary. And even when I started the podcast, which was about nine months after I started parentingaces.com, you know, it's, it was my first time doing interviews that at the time were considered web-based radio interviews the term podcast wasn't really being used yet. I was a little nervous my first few episodes. And I still, honestly, depending on who my guest is, sometimes I get really nervous, even though I've been doing this for 10 years now. Yeah, no, it's, I, I can empathize. It's pretty cool. And yeah, I have to say as well, you know, congrats on joining the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I mean, I'm on that too. And it's, it's really cool to have you on the network as well. But yeah, it's always, well, I guess not always, but a lot of times it can be nerve wracking, especially when you get some great guests on and you've had plenty of great guests. So a really impressive roster in, in scrolling through your episodes. Um, but yeah, that that's really cool. And what is, what's maybe one piece of advice that you learned, you know, when you first joined that group from the parents that, that really was, was instrumental in, in helping you in some way or the other? I think the main best piece of advice I got was to let my son own the process and to make him accountable, hold him accountable for choices and decisions that he made having to do with his training or how he's performing at a tournament or what he's choosing to do in his off time, you know, and continuing to ask him periodically, do you still love this? Is this still something you really want to do? And, and making sure that it's his choice, not me pushing him. Yeah, super important there. Great advice. So, you know, it's interesting. I was going through uh, some of your uh, content and, and I saw in the beginning of one of your articles, you mentioned that you know, junior development is a process and it can often last 10 years or more. So I was wondering... I know we can probably talk for hours about this, but like what what are the the kind of the the phases of of junior development generally? Well, you're asking me as a non-coach, as a parent. So I'm an, I'm giving you the parent perspective. I'm I'm not a coach and you know, I've interviewed a lot of them and learned a lot over the years, but all that is a precursor to say that I think, you know, at first when kids get into the sport, they're they're starting to play because it's fun and they want to do something with maybe a friend or a group of friends and tennis is a nice thing to do. They want to be outside. They want to get some exercise, you know, for younger kids, especially having that physical activity is so important. So I think at the entry level, it's really crucial to keep tennis fun and to keep the kids engaged and to make it a social event rather than, you know, something hardcore and serious that they're pursuing to lead to this greater goal or something. And once they start kind of showing some competency and start to ask questions about, you know, playing tournaments or taking their tennis to the next level, you know, maybe they're seeing older kids where they're training and and they want to be like that older kid and want to get really good at it. And when they start asking those questions, then things take a big turn, right? So all of a sudden, it's not just about dropping your kid at the court for their hour drill or, you know, clinic with a coach and their buddies. Now it becomes a little more calculated. Are we going to jump into competition? You know, how, 
How do we figure out which tournaments are appropriate? How do we know when it's time to start traveling or whether we should just stay close to home? How do we know when to push our kid into playing up or playing a higher level of event? So there are all sorts of questions that start to come up once they enter the junior competition arena. And then as they start to progress through that, let's say they enter their first tournament, maybe after two or three events, they're they're winning lots of matches, maybe even winning the tournaments. So now you're looking at moving them up to the next level of tournament where the competition's a little steeper. And, you know, it, there's a challenge with all of that from the parent side, balancing what the child wants versus what's best for them in terms of pressure, in terms of the physical commitment, in terms of balancing school and tennis and social and balancing the rest of your family life. And, you know, if you're a working parent, there are all sorts of challenges taking your kids to tournaments when you may have to miss work. And how do you how do you navigate all of that? And that's why Parenting Aces is here. We're here to help parents navigate through all of those pieces. Of course, as the kids get older, they enter high school years. Then if college tennis is a goal, then we start have to think about recruiting and what does that look like? And how do we figure out where our kid is going to thrive in college, you know, from a geographic, from academic major standpoint? I mean, there are all sorts of pieces that go into the recruiting process. And it's, you know, it just becomes each ste- step of the way. There are more challenges. The challenges have broader implications, I think, the older our children get. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is preserving your relationship with your child, that parent-child relationship. Nothing else matters if that relationship goes south. Yeah, great advice, Lisa. And I've definitely seen that unfortunately happen, you know, where the parent is just way hardcore and then the, you know, the relationship between parent and son or daughter, whoever, you know, it goes down. So, I guess to that point, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see parents are making? I know you mentioned that, you know, one of them is that we should let the the child kind of direct where they want to go. But what are some of the other biggest mistakes that parents are making generally when trying to get their son or daughter, you know, to the next level? And I mean, it's, you know, it's tough because we have parents that obviously they're not experienced and they don't know what's going on. So they naturally make mistakes. But what are some of those mistakes? I think one big mistake is listening to other parents who may not know as much as they will have you believe they know. And certainly every child is different. Every family situation is different. So when you are seeking advice from other parents or from a coach or from me, you have to kind of digest all of that in the context of your family unit and what's going to work for your family. So for example, if you're being pushed to take your kid and start traveling around the country or around the world to play tournaments, you know, that may work for a family where they've got a parent whose job is flexible or or maybe a stay-at-home parent who can take the time and travel, or a family that has the financial resources to support that. But at the same time, you know, if your family situation isn't conducive to that, then that advice isn't very helpful. So you then have to find another way to help your child progress through the levels of junior tennis. Another thing I see happen a lot is 
either, and these are two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, either parents leaving their kid with a coach who's not helping that kid progress, whether it's a personality conflict, whether it's the fact that the coach just doesn't have the knowledge or the skill to coach that child effectively, or on the opposite side, jumping from coach to coach to coach so that the child never has a consistent voice in his or her ear to really learn the game and learn how to compete effectively. So I, I would say those are a couple of, of the biggest mistakes. And again, pushing your child beyond what they want, enforcing your goals and dreams on the child without regard for what the child actually wants to get from tennis, it, it, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, great stuff there, Lisa. I was listening to you interview Todd Whittem, who I've had on the podcast as well. You know, he does some great work training athletes and bringing some of them to the elite level. And I thought it was very interesting that he mentioned that, you know, rankings shouldn't really be the primary focus. And this has been reiterated to me from some coaches where, you know, they say to focus on the process and not the results. So I was wondering kind of, your take on the rankings just in general, like how they work in the junior system and what you think about them and, and what their impact should be on, on players? Well, that's a loaded question because things are kind of a big mess right now with USTA rankings, at least. TA launched a new ranking platform, a new junior comp structure, a new tournament platform system in January. Obviously, it, it did not get tested enough because when it launched, it was just a big mess. And three months later, it's continued to be a big mess. The rankings are not accurate. Kids are being excluded from events because their rankings are messed up. And so they're not being selected by the tournament directors because their rankings are too low. Um, it, it's it's kind of a, a disaster right now. So the message I've been trying time to focus on development and disregard rankings, just don't even think about them because they're so messed up right now. And really, if you continue to get better every day and you continue to learn and take what you've learned onto the match court when you do play a tournament, then the rankings are going to take care of themselves, right? So... It's easy for me to say that sitting where I'm sitting. The reality is that rankings are used to select into tournaments. So if your ranking isn't at a place where you're able to get into the events that you want to play, that's problematic. And if it's because you're not simply not good enough, you're not winning enough matches to warrant selection into those higher events, well, that's one thing, right? And that tells you you need to be working harder and figuring out how to improve enough so that you are winning matches so that you do improve your ranking. However, if it's due to the ranking structure being a mess, which is the situation right now, it's really out of your hands. So the best thing to do is to look for competitive opportunities wherever you can find them, whether that's playing adult open events, whether that's playing UTR events, um, whether it's just playing team events, you know, playing on a club team or something so that you get that match play and can continue to grow and improve your game so that once the USTA ranking system is fixed, which, you know, please, I'm hoping that happens soon, then 
everything will sort of level itself out and hopefully your ranking will reflect the true level of where you are. But I think that's why so many people are so engaged with UTR right now, because UTR simply takes your match results, feeds them into its algorithm and spits out a rating for you. And so it's all based on you know, your scores and your results. There's nothing that's getting messed up, uh, you know, on the back end. That said, UTR certainly has had challenges over the years, missing results and things like that. So I guess, you know, the bottom line here is the onus really is on the player or the parent, if it's a younger player, to check the various rating and ranking websites on a regular basis, whether that's tennisrecruiting.net, whether that's UTR, whether that's USTA, ITF, whatever events you're playing, to check and make sure that your results are correct in their system, right? That they've captured all of the events you've played, all the matches you've played, that the scores are correct, the results are correct, so that those ratings and rankings are accurate to the best ability of that particular system, if that makes sense. And that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, sorry to go back a bit, like if you had mentioned it already, but what what exactly is the system right now for the rankings that, yeah, I mean, what what is that system right now? With USTA? Yeah, sorry mean? for USTA, yeah. Yeah, so USTA launched a new, a totally new junior comp and ranking system on January 1 of this year. And what they did was they took all of the sections, well, let me back up. So prior to this year, each USTA section could level its tournaments however it wanted. It was left to the section to determine how to name the different levels of the tournaments and how to decide who got to play in each level of tournament, right? And so if you, let's say, for example, you live in the Southern California section, you're traveling to Texas to maybe visit family or have a vacation or whatever, and you want to play a tournament there, the Texas tournament structure for juniors had this whole, you know, way of naming their their tournaments that is completely different from how things were in SoCal. So trying to figure out how do I know which tournament to enter? I have no idea what these levels are, what they mean, what level of player is going to be here, made it very challenging. So USTA decided we're going to just make it the same across the board. We have seven levels of tournaments. Level one are our top level elite national events. And they go down from there all the way to level seven, which are the entry level events. Those are for kids just starting in tennis, just starting to compete. A lot of those are one day events or maybe two day events with round robin draws. Things to keep it fun and interesting and engaging for kids just jumping into competition. So so I think that's a great idea, you know, having level one through seven, it's the same no matter which section of the country you're in. If you're trying which level of tournament is appropriate and you sign up for that, great. What they also did, USTA, is they revamped their ranking system. So now there is one ranking list that is for all ages of juniors from entry through age 18, everybody, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of section, is on one national ranking list. That list can be sorted by section, by gender, by age group. 
And so you can go in and see, you know, if I am a girl playing in the 14 and unders in the Southern section, I can filter the national ranking list to show me where I stand in my section, or even you can, you know, drill it down even further. Where do I stand in my state, in my age group for other girls in the 14s? In theory, great idea, right? Because you can, in one fell swoop, see your national ranking, your section ranking, your district ranking, your state ranking, however your section does that. You can see where you stand in terms of your recruiting class, which I think is really important for those who want to go to college. And it's a great idea. The problem is USTA launched this new ranking system And the back end had tons of bugs, still has tons of bugs. So it's not capturing all tournaments. The points per round ranking system that USTA still is using hasn't been properly coded or adjusted for this new system. So players playing in a level six, which is a lower level of tournament, are being awarded higher points per round than, for example, somebody playing in a level three tournament. That's not how it should work, right? The higher level of tournament should earn more ranking points because it's a more challenging event for, you know, higher level players, but it's all messed up right now. So parents are very frustrated. Tournament directors are very frustrated and the players, uh, you know, I'm sure are very frustrated too. Yeah. Well, (laughs) thanks for the summary. And yeah, I really hope they get that, uh, that all sorted out. That's, that's a tough situation there. It, in terms of uh, kind of going on the same track, you know, I got some questions from from people about really what what are the colleges looking for from players? I'm sure you get this all the time. You know, what should they be concentrating yeah. on to to try to maximize, you know, whatever goals they have in terms of getting on to a, a school's program? I mean, the there's a very long answer to that question, right? I'll, I'll try to be brief, but The bottom line is every college coach is looking for something different. So some coaches are very focused on team culture and they're looking for players that they feel would be a good fit into their team culture. Other coaches are looking for players who can help them win national championships. And the other stuff is secondary to the level of player that they're getting, you know, the tennis level, how good they are. Some coaches are looking for cultural diversity on their teams. So they're recruiting internationally and really want a wide range of player experiences coming together on their team and, you know, everything in between. I mean, some coaches are very concerned about their team GPA and they, and so they're looking at academic performance in high school to ensure that their team GPA is going to stay at top level. So there are a lot of different factors. Notice that none of those factors include the word rating or ranking. Well, I think families have been convinced that your ranking and your UTR rating are the key factors in recruiting, that if you don't have a good enough ranking or a good enough rating, that college coaches aren't going to pay any attention to you. That's true and it's not true. I think, you know, coaches do use those numbers as a way to gauge how good a player is. Because honestly, you know, at the end of the day, if you're playing a college sport, the team wants to win. I mean, that's always way more fun to win. But 
College coaches are also typically very smart and they know that a rating or a ranking may not adequately or accurately reflect the ability of the player or what the player is going to bring to the team overall. So for example, there are kids who country fly over the world to seek out weaker draws so that they can boost their rating and ranking. And college coaches are smart. They look at a player's record. They look at the tournaments they've played. They look at the players that the player has beaten or lost to, and they know what that means. You know, they're, they're not fooled by a better ranking or a better UTR. They know where those, those numbers are coming from, and they know how to analyze that. Beyond that, I think the coaches are, are really looking at the comportment of the individual. You know, how, how do you behave on court? What is your kind of go-to reflex if things aren't going well in a match? Are you a good sport? Are you losing your temper and throwing your racket? Are you calling for an official every other second? Are you dropping out of back draws? Are you defaulting matches because you're losing? I mean, coaches look at all of these things. They're also looking at the player's social media. So I, I would say to parents, you know, if your kid is in the recruiting years, first thing they need to do is go through all their social media and clean it up. It is crucial that there's nothing in their social media that's going to cause a coach to say, you know what, this is a great player. They'd make a great addition to the team, but I can't have somebody bringing this baggage into my, my program. And they'll take a pass. So that's important for people to understand. I appreciate you highlighting all of that, Lisa. And yeah, I mean, that last point too, I remember at, at one point, uh, my school, UMBC, was uh, we were told that they were looking through social media profiles and kind of taking some action for certain people. So that's that's dangerous. Yeah. In terms of the college experience, how does a player choose what is right for them? You know, because I, I heard you on the the Great Shots podcast that you were, you know, it was very nice that, you know, the hosts, they, they played club tennis and then, you know, they had a great time there and they were very happy with their selection. So I was wondering, how, how does a player choose what's right for them between, you know, D1, D2, D3, club level, you know, those types of options, or JUCO even, uh, junior college? Uh, how do they choose? I mean, there are a lot of factors that go into that decision. We have actually a video series on our YouTube channel about just that, you know, the factors that you need to be looking at. And there, some of the factors come from the family, right? So things like, how much can the family afford for college? If there's a scholarship, how much does it need to be? You know, what can the family contribution be financially? Maybe there's a geographic limitation. You know, the family feels very strongly that their players stay within a hundred mile radius or 200 mile radius or whatever it is, you know, because they want to be able to have the player come home on weekends or they want to be able to travel and visit their child on campus and watch them play and all of that. So, those two factors, I think, are, you know, kind of at the beginning of the process, determining geography, determining cost. Then you need to look at the academic offerings of the school because you will be a student athlete, not an athlete student. Now, 
That said, there are some top level D1 programs where it may feel more like you're an athlete student. But in most cases, the student part comes first. So does the college or university have the major that you're interested in? What are the time commitments for that major? Will you be able to pursue that major and pursue tennis at the varsity level? Or if you choose that major, maybe club tennis is the only way that you're going to be able to do both. So understanding, you know, what the dynamic is there. Then, you know, it gets into more of the the details, right? So weather is a consideration for a lot of players. I know for my son, he absolutely wanted to come to California to play his college tennis. That was really important to him. And so he was looking at schools in California. That was it. So I think that's another factor to look at is the weather. And, you know, are you going to be spending most of your season indoors or are you going to have the ability to train and play outdoors all year? And does that matter to you? You know, Then you start to get into the coaches and the other players on the team and that they need to talk to the current players on the team and they need to talk to the recent graduates from the team to really get a feel for what it means to play at this particular program for these particular coaches. Uh, What's the day to day? Ask that question. You know, what does your day look like during season and not in season? How many Tournaments are, is the coach taking the team to in the fall? You know, how many opportunities are there going to be to to play matches during the fall before the dual match season? If you're looking at a D3 school, then you need to look at, you know, what is the balance between the academics and the tennis? Because a lot of D3 programs are at top-notch academic institutions. And so there's a lot of academic pressure, a lot of work that needs to be done in and out of the classroom, in addition to the work that needs to be done on and off the tennis court. So these are questions to ask. Um, I, I know I've said this a million times over the years, but you shouldn't be choosing your college solely based on the coach because coaches leave. And this happened to my son, uh, twice actually, (laughs) where uh, his first college, he committed to because of actually the assistant coaches, that was who he bonded with were the assistant coaches. And they both left the summer before his freshman year. And it totally changed the experience that he had. And so when he made the decision to transfer, he was also looking at not only the head coach, but the assistant coach and made a decision to transfer. And the assistant coach who he had had a relationship with his whole life actually left the summer before he got to campus. And so that was, you know, disappointing, even though the head coach was still somebody that he loved and respected and was happy to go play for, you know, one of the pieces of him making that decision was the assistant and his relationship with the assistant. So don't choose a college solely based on the coach, because again, coaches leave, head coaches leave and assistant coaches leave. There is you know, there's a reason it's called the coaching carousel. We see it every spring and summer where, you know, you start to read about this coach is leaving this program, moving to that program. This assistant coach is becoming a head coach over here. So it happens and it's very disappointing if that's the key factor that you've used to make your decision. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's, (laughs) 
you know, quite a bit for your son to have to go through emotionally, but I'm glad that everything turned out okay for him. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of great factors, and we'll definitely link to that YouTube video that you mentioned, Lisa. I think that would be of great help to a lot of parents and players around the world. And yeah, it kind of reminds me of one of my friends who he he was a great talent, a great player, and we, we all expected him to go to a Division One school, but you know, he considered all the factors and he actually went up, ended up going to Emory, him and his brother, Michael and Chris. And then they ended up, I think, each winning the national championship in singles and they had a great experience. So definitely don't want to just go on one or two factors. Good stuff there. Curious, any any tips or <laughs> secrets on like how to uh, give your chance to, uh, or yourself the best chance of getting a scholarship to a school? Are there any, any intricacies that maybe some players and coaches are, or players and uh, parents aren't aware of? I think the the first thing is to make sure your grades are good and your school, your test scores are good. A lot of schools now have waived the SAT and the ACT requirement, but I think it's still important to take the tests and have the scores. Uh, and you can choose to use them or not use them in your applications based on how well you do. But the first thing that you have to do is to get into the school itself, right? You have to be admitted. And tennis coaches, you know, sometimes have a little bit of pull. If, if a player is on the bubble academically, you know, the coach can go to bat for that player and, and work with the admissions department and, and help them get into the school. But the better your grades, the more opportunities there are for scholarship dollars, right? So division one and two do offer tennis scholarships and those are not based on grades. They are solely based on the discretion of the coach to award those scholarships. And some schools are fully funded and on the men's side have the full four and a half scholarships on the women's side, the full eight scholarships. Some schools are not fully funded. So maybe they only have one or two scholarships to offer. This is a question that is really important to ask early on during the recruiting process. Are you fully funded? If not, how many scholarships do you have available? That said, even if you are not eligible to receive an athletic scholarship, either because you're in a D3 school or because the school doesn't have the money to offer you, if you have the grades, there are oftentimes tons of scholarship dollars available based on academics. So it's important to pursue those options as well. And on top of that, there are all sorts of kind of bizarro scholarships out there and, and not all are bizarro, but if you're from a military family, there are scholarships available to kids of military families. If you're left-handed, there are scholarships available. Your you know church or synagogue may have scholarship money available. Your local Rotary Club or other organizations in your community may have scholarships available. A lot of times high schools will have specialty scholarships that they award. So making sure you understand the scholarships uh, that are available from your high school and in your local community is a great thing to do. You could go to your local community's chamber of commerce and ask them if they have a list of scholarships that are available to kids in that community. But, you know, $1,000 here, $500 there, all of a sudden you, you pool all this scholarship money together and it has a pretty big impact, right? So 
college is expensive and it's not just the tuition, you know, it's, it's the books, it's the labs, it's the, the dorms, it's the meal plan, it's the travel back and forth home. Um, there are all sorts of things involved. And so the more scholarship money that you can garner, the better. Of course, if you are applying to college and you're not in that top 1% financially, filling out the FAFSA form, trying to get that federal aid and just seeing what you qualify for is also really useful. It doesn't mean that even if you qualify, you have to take the aid that's offered through FAFSA, but it is at least another source. A lot of times it's in the form of student loan, but sometimes it's a grant that doesn't have to be paid back. So I think, you know, exploring all the different uh, areas of scholarship is, is really crucial unless you're just, you know, fortunate enough that you don't need to worry about that. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Lisa. I think it's really important to open people's eyes to, to you know, to the other sources that, that you mentioned, because I think people mainly just think about, you know, athletic or academic, which, yeah, I was fortunate to get some of both. My coach was, you know, very good about trying to spread around the money as much as possible. So he gave a lot of partials out, um, but, you know, able to combine it with an academic one was great for me and the, my parents too. <laughs> so yeah. just to kind of step back a little bit from the college game and it kind of applies anyway, but you know, I get a lot of questions from parents who ask me, how do I find the right coach for my player? So can you give us some insights into that question? <laughs> That's such a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, you know, and yeah, thanks. And my answer has changed a lot over the years. I used to say, you know, first and foremost, make sure it's a certified coach, right? A coach that's certified by USPTA or PTR. I, I have since learned that USPTA and PTR, while great organizations, they really don't educate coaches on junior development, on the ratings and rankings on junior competition, on college recruiting, none of that is part of the education that you receive in order or, or are tested on in order to get that certification. So for a junior tennis player, having that certification is really secondary, right? It's, it's not going to guarantee you a certain level of coach. I think first and foremost, you want to make sure there's a rapport between the player and the coach and that there's a level of trust between the player and the coach and between the parents and the coach, right? For me, the thing that was always really important was how well does the coach communicate with me? I am a parent, and when my son was growing up, was a parent who, what you're working on, you know, where is he in relation to his peers? What tournament should he be playing? You know, as a coach, I feel like you should be guiding me in terms of selecting tournaments. When, it, when should he be playing up? When is it time to start playing the next level of tournament? All of those things were really important to me. I wanted that communication. I understand not everybody feels that way. Some parents want to put their player into the hands of the coach and then take a giant step back and let the coach manage everything. So if that's your personality and that's what you're looking for, you need to ask the question and make sure that's the coach you're hiring for your family, right? I, of course, it goes without saying that you should run any coach through the safe sport program and make sure that they have not been disciplined for anything that 
would give you pause as a parent uh, for working with your child. And we do have a link to that on parentingaces.com. So I would encourage anybody listening to this, if your child is working with a coach, please click on that safe sport link and just run your, your coach through there and make sure that everything's all good. It gives you a level of comfort for sure. And I think it's an important piece of information to have uh, on any coach that you're going to hire. So regardless of sport and gosh, what else? I mean, of course they have to have competency in teaching technique and teaching tactics, whether they themselves are, are qualified to teach fitness and nutrition and the mental side of the game, or whether they work with a team of coaches who can supplement those other areas, you know, those are questions to ask. And all of those pieces are part of the junior development puzzle. So it's important to have all of those pieces in place. That said, not every kid needs a mental coach. Not every kid needs a footwork coach or a fitness coach or a nutrition coach. But if your kid is someone who does need those things, you want to make sure that you have access to them and that your coach has access to them. So those are questions to ask. I would also ask the question, what is your policy on tournaments? Do you go to every tournament? If so, do you charge for your time? Do you, when my kid is playing a tournament out of town, will you coach take my child or is it expected that I'm going to take my child and then report back to you? How does that process work? So I think really asking a lot of questions, opening the line of communication between the parent and the coach, but at the same time, making sure that the child feels good in the coach's presence, right? That, that the child feels like this is somebody they can learn from, somebody that's going to help them grow as a player, but also as a person. Again, for me, it was very important that my child's coach was concerned about the whole person, not just the athlete. You know, I wanted the coach concerned about how my kid was doing in school and what was going on socially and what was going on at home. You know, I wanted a coach who cared about that and who my son felt cared about those things. And it's hard to find coaches like that. You know, there, there are a ton of coaches out there. There aren't a ton of great coaches out there. Yeah, very true, Lisa. I have a specific follow-up question about what you mentioned. Uh, in your experience and from what you've heard, is it a good thing that the coach would charge to, to attend a tournament and watch, or is that a bad thing or does it not really matter? Or is it not really significant? I think it's significant for sure. But I think the important thing is that everybody knows what the policy is, Mm -hmm. right? So the coach needs to have a policy on that, you know, whether it's, you know, if it's a local tournament I'll come watch two matches over the course of the tournament at no extra charge. Or, you know, if it's a, if the, the coach has a policy where every time they come out to watch your child compete, they're charging you for their time. It's not that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's just that it needs to be communicated and everybody needs to know the policy going in so that there's no surprise. You know, the last thing the parent wants is to get some massive bill at the end of a tournament weekend when they didn't expect the coach to charge for their time. Also the coaches, you know, they have lives outside of our kids. A lot of them have families. So if we want them to take time away from their own family, to be spending time with our kid at an event, 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, for sure. At least it's great stuff. I got a question from from a fan who asked, what can a junior college do to start a tennis program? Because he says that in his area, there's quite a few talented players. And perhaps, you know, if these junior colleges started a program, then they could join it and, you know, transfer out or not transfer out. So I was wondering if you have seen any programs, you know, start from scratch and Maybe any advice on that front to to get one started at a junior college or any other, you know, place of learning? I really, that's so outside my wheelhouse, (laughs) but I love that somebody's asking the question because the more programs out there, the better, the more kids that have an opportunity to play college tennis, the better, in my opinion. But I would say, you know, the first stop would maybe be to go to the ITA, the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, and look for some advice there. I'm sure that the ITA, if they don't have the information themselves, can certainly put the person in touch with a JUCO coach who can help walk them through the process. You know, I, I think, I I wish I could say the USTA would be a good resource for that. I'm not sure that's in the USTA's wheelhouse either though, but I do feel like the ITA would be, would be a good jumping off point for that. Gotcha. Thanks for that, Lisa. So another question, trying to bring myself on here. Another question for you is, you know, the classic one and just curious about your take. I know that you're, I, I think I know where your, your stance is on this, but in terms of a player who's really good, you know, very high junior ranking and such, when is it appropriate for them, if ever, to decide to just turn pro and forego college? Is there ever a, a good instance for that and any other advice regarding that situation? Well, again, I'm not a coach, but I can share what I've learned over the years. And what I've learned is that for boys, it's much harder to bypass college and and find success directly from juniors on the pro circuit, whether that's playing the entry-level ITF tournaments or whether it's going straight to the ATP tour. it's, It's very rare that we see 17, 18 year olds ready to compete at that level and ready to win at that level and be able to make a living there. It happens. I mean, certainly we saw Taylor Fritz. We saw, we've seen Francis Tiafo. I mean, we've seen players go that route, Tommy Paul, but you know, it's, it's rare. And I think if you have a child who's physically very developed at age 17, 18 on the, on the boys side, I'm talking about right now, you know, and they're able physically to be on the court and be competitive with 25, 27, 30 year old men, 
then maybe you consider it. You know, if they're winning entry level events as a junior, meaning that they're going out there and they're beating these other players, then, you know, maybe it's appropriate to go straight to a professional status as opposed to going to college for a year or two years. But Again, I think that's very rare. I think most junior players are going to benefit from even one year of college tennis because it gives them a chance not only to mature physically, but also to mature emotionally, which again, on the boys side, you know, typically males are a little bit slower to mature uh, emotionally. And so I think having that extra year to live away from home to be in a team atmosphere where they're playing for something other than just themselves is a really good opportunity to grow and develop. On the women's side, it's a little bit different. You know, girls mature physically younger than boys do. And so typically a, a girl who is having a lot of success in the juniors and who has physically matured by age 16, 17, is able to go out and compete against adults and to win matches. So on the women's side, it's a little bit different. But again, you still have that emotional component, right? And I am just, you know, of the mindset that I don't think anybody regrets going to college for a year or two. I think you oftentimes hear players regret on, but I, I can't recall ever hearing a player say they regret having spent at least one or two years in college. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing experience and one that I'll def, definitely treasure for a long time. Um, so great thoughts there. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. Um, so tough subject. And I actually got an email about this from Suzanne, who's a, obviously a podcast listener, and she had brought up that the University of Minnesota tennis team is going to get cut, I think, in July. Uh, I think the decision was already made, which has a big impact, obviously, on the players, but also even you know a lot of donors are saying that they're not going to donate any longer. So I guess first question for you is, what are the common characteristics that cause tennis programs to get, unfortunately, cut? Wow. I'm with COVID, we've seen so many cuts across all divisions. And it's really heart wrenching when that happens, not just for the university, but and for the players, but like you mentioned to the donors, you know, the alums of the program, all of a sudden, the school they played for the team they played for no longer exists. And that's just really sad. I, I there's so many factors, typically, it's financial, right? So a lot of times, universities, colleges and universities will put the blame on the tennis program and say, well, you're a non-revenue sport, you're easy to cut, so we're going to cut you. Typically, college tennis programs don't cost a ton of money. The The real expense in college athletics, as we all know, is football. Mm-hmm. And if the football program is hurting financially, not the football program doesn't necessarily feel the pain of it. Who feels the pain are the other sports at the school they are the first on the chopping block. And instead of cutting coaching salaries for football teams or, you know, cutting other expenses for the football teams, the university chooses to cut other sports and absorb that budget into the football budget. So 
it's heart-wrenching when that happens. You know, I know a lot of people over the years have put blame on the international aspect of a lot of college tennis teams and the fact that we see a lot of college teams with no Americans in the lineup. You know, all, all six players in the lineup are from outside the States. And, you know, there's a lot. And, and I, I have fallen prey to that as well, that line of thinking that, you know, if you want to ensure the preservation of your program, you better be recruiting kids from the local community to engage the local community in your team and in your competitions. I've kind of changed my way of thinking about that over the years. And, and I really do understand the value of recruiting internationally. My son's best friend now is one of his teammates who came from New Zealand and you know, had my son not played tennis on a team with this young man, they never would have met. Now, this young man is part of our family. And so there's a lot of value to bringing in players from around the world. But I think if a coach and a team decides to focus solely internationally, then there's that much more work that needs to be done to engage in the local community, right? You have to sell your team to your community, sell the support and get people out and do things like offer clinics, offer pro-ams, have your team out in the community doing service projects so that your team engages with the local community and you garner support that way. It's really difficult for a university to cut a program when the community is behind that program. So a lot of the onus, unfortunately, gets placed on the college coaches to work hard to make sure their program is an invaluable member of the local community. Thanks, Lisa. That's a great, great point there, especially the last one about really putting in the effort as the coach and the team do endear yourself to the community. I think, yeah, I've heard that from some other coaches too, is great advice. So this, I mean, this could be, you know, a really basic rudimentary question, but this happened to my program where so I played at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which was a division one program. And, you know, fortunately we got the NCAs my last year and played Duke and all that great time, but they were cut a few years ago, probably more than that, but yeah. it, time flies. So, you know, one of their reasons was title nine, but I was kind of confused because they, you know, they cut both the men's and women's team. So I didn't know how that how that worked, you know, <laughs> with the balancing of Title IX. So how, what is that? What's going on there? Like, how does how does the Title IX actually work? Was does that, does that make sense as an excuse if you cut both teams? No. Title IX is often the scapegoat for teams being cut. And it's an easy scapegoat because nobody really understands Title IX all that well. <laughs> um, I actually... I actually had a Title IX expert on the Parenting Aces podcast a few weeks ago to delve into Title IX and what it really does cover. We all think that Title IX is only about having an equal number of playing opportunities for female athletes as you do for male athletes. That's only one piece of Title IX, right? It's not the whole, it's not the whole story. Title IX is about gender equality on campus and that cuts across everything, not just athletics. Title IX was not put into place as an athletics law. It is across the board academic opportunity, and it doesn't just uh, apply to colleges and universities. Title IX impacts 
from elementary school all the way through higher education. So it's not limited to colleges and universities. So that's important to understand. When a university says that they're cutting a men's and a women's tennis team and saying it's because of Title IX, no, I call BS on that one. Good. <laughs> yeah, th- thanks for explaining because <laughs> yeah. I, w- I was just so confused. Like, I-, I mean, even though I really didn't have an understanding of what it was, I just... It didn't make sense to me. So yeah, it's, it's really a sorry excuse, unfortunately. That's because it doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very annoying. So I assume that, you know, a lot of the advice that you gave for preventing a team to, uh, you know, from being cut would apply to this question, but you know, this is kind of specific to uh, you men and, you know, maybe some others, but like it, once a, a program is, you know, they decide, oh yeah, we're going to cut for these BS reasons. Then uh, what, if anything, do you think could be done to to try to save the program? I mean, once it's already cut, it's very difficult to get the team back. It's been done. We saw it at Arizona, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it can be done, but it's it's a tough road to hoe. The best thing you can do is to prevent the cut in the first place. So when the buzz starts getting out there that, oh, this school's considering cutting their team. I think rallying the troops uh, is a great first step, getting people to write letters to the university officials, you know, the president of the university, the athletic director, all the different departments, and especially for alums of that program to start reaching out to the university and explain to them why they need to preserve the program, what the program did for you as a former player there, what it did for your child, you know, whoever you are, to engage the local businesses in the efforts to preserve the program. So, for example, let's say you have a a local law office who has traditionally hired out the tennis team. You know, they can write a letter saying the value that this tennis program has offered them as a local business. And I think that's really important for universities to know and understand. Also, from, you know, within the tennis team itself, the players and the coaches, making sure that they invite the university higher ups out to practices, out to matches, to show the university how the team is contributing not only to the campus culture, but also to the community culture. And this is what I said before about, you know, making sure that your team is engaged in your local community, showing the impact that you have. And hopefully that's going to be enough to keep the program in place. Obviously, if it's a financial situation, you know, we've seen teams try to fundraise to save their teams and, Sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't because the financial issue is kind of the the crutch that the university uses. They say it's for financial reasons, but really it has with other things that have been mismanaged. So, you know, raising a hundred, two hundred, even five hundred thousand dollars typically isn't gonna fix the underlying issue that's causing the program to be fixed, uh, to be cut, excuse me. But another thing and this is something that I've held up as an example multiple times over the years, is to follow Stanford's lead. Stanford has a fund that pays for 
everything having to do with its men's and women's tennis teams in perpetuity. So fundraising for the team becomes really crucial because if you can go to the university and say, look, we're not taking one cent from the university's budget. We are self-supporting. We are self-funded. We don't need one penny from you. And to cut us makes absolutely no sense because we're not costing you a dime and we're attracting students into our program. We're attracting businesses to recruit from our school. And these are all positives that, that we bring to the table for the university as a whole. Now that those are some really good nuggets there. Yeah, I think, like you said, just finding you know previous players and donors that would uh, you know create a fund like that would be really good. Um, really, really fantastic. Lisa, I want to mention Saul Schwartz because you know obviously he played a big impact or had a bit big impact at UMBC, and it was very interesting because I actually talked to him, I think a month or two before he unfortunately passed. And I remember that day because I, I, I heard about it and then I just kind of collapsed in my chair, you know, just thinking of, you know, how, of how much of a passionate person he was and, you know, that he, you know, he was always thinking about how to improve and save uh, college tennis. And so then you, you ended up putting on, you know, this, these great tournaments. So just uh, curious about, you know, I guess your relationship with him and then also, you know, the, the tournament in honor of him. And if that's going to be something that's going to happen again in the near future. So I met Saul online. He was part of that group that I was talking about that encouraged me to start Parenting Aces in the first place. And when I started my radio show back then, he would call in almost every week and add to the conversation. It was awesome. We wound up meeting in person for the first time several months, well, almost a year really, after I started Parenting Aces because he put on an event in Baltimore and invited my son to come play in the event. And so my son and I flew up there and Saul picked us up and, you know, we had dinner with his family and his home and and that was it that cemented our relationship uh, from then on Saul was he played, he was a volunteer assistant coach at UMBC he was an enormous college tennis fan, so outspoken, so opinionated on what needed to happen to preserve and grow college tennis. And he actually started the Save College Tennis hashtag, which I adopted and have continued to use over the years, uh, much to the dismay of some other people in the tennis industry who I won't name, but um, I think, you know, the hashtag has relevance. And certainly now with COVID, we've seen so many teams get cut that save college tennis hashtag is more important than ever. But as you mentioned, Saul passed away suddenly. He was in his late forties and had a heart attack in his home. And it was heart wrenching, really heart wrenching. And it was five years ago. It was freshman year of college, actually. And all it had a, a big impact on my son, too, and really helped him through his recruiting. And, you know, my son would call Saul and bounce ideas off him and say, you know, I'm talking to this school. What do you think about it? What do you know about the coach? Yada, yada. And Saul was, you know, amazing through that process. And so when he passed away, I struggled. You know, what do I do to honor this man who has been 
such a great friend to me and my family, but also had such a, a huge impact on the tennis community as a whole. And so I, I talked to his wife and I talked to Melanie Rubin, who's now is one of my closest friends. Um, and we got together and decided that the best way to honor Saul would be to run a junior tennis tournament with all of the features that Saul would feel were important to have in a tournament and all of the features that he incorporated in the event that my son had gone to play in Baltimore a few years prior. So we started the, the Saul Schwartz tournament. Um, we purposely kept entry fees super, super low. I think they were $30 the first year. And we had amazing prizes. We had amazing goodie bags. We got sponsors right and left. And, and we pulled this together in a matter of like five weeks, I think, from start to finish and did it through the UTR tournament platform, which was new at that time. So we were kind of one of the pilots for their tournament platform and had just an amazing event in Baltimore. And we grew the event. We added Atlanta as a location because at the time I was living in Atlanta full time. And because of COVID, we didn't have the event last year, but I have handed the event off to somebody else. But my understanding is that it may be happening again for 2021, which I'm really happy to hear. And of course, parenting aces will be involved. Awesome, Lisa. Thanks for that. And are there any other people in you know the the junior and college tennis world that you want to shout out as perhaps a resource or somebody that we should follow for that information? For just junior and college tennis, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tons. There's so many people doing great work in this space. You know, my mentor through all of this has been Colette Lewis of Zoo Tennis. So if you're not following Zoo Tennis, you absolutely need to be. Colette does an amazing job covering the athletes and the events. And she writes about players around the world who, you know, years later become these top professional players. And, and you think, oh, my gosh, I remember reading about them when they were playing their first ITF tournament. You know, Colette spotted them. So for sure, Zoo Tennis, if you are in the States, making sure that you follow TennisRecruiting.net, obviously UTR and USTA for ranking information and junior competition information. Those are important follows. And for those who are looking to play college tennis, following ITA tennis is also, you know, important and informative. There's some great information on their website. There are, you know, we have a bunch of partners. So if you go to parentingaces.com and scroll, go down to the bottom of the page and you'll see our partner scroll across the bottom. Highly recommend following everybody in our partner scroll. And that would include the Little Mo tournaments. That would include I'm Recruitable. That would include LRT Sports. Second Serve, which um, we feature on our podcast this week. So I urge people to have a listen to that. I know I'm going to leave people off and this is terrible. Um, 21 Ace Tennis Events is putting on uh, a series of tournaments that are prize money events and, and great opportunities for junior players to get out there and compete against a wide variety of players from different age groups and different levels of play. Who am I forgetting? Tennis Channel, of course, as the host of our podcast. And I... I 
yeah, I think if you're listening to this and you're in a different part of the world, making sure that you follow your nation's tennis federation, whatever that is, whether it's the LTA, Tennis Canada, Tennis Australia, wherever you are in the world, make sure you follow your your nation's federation because that's going to be a great resource for you in terms of understanding opportunities that are available, including college play, scholarships, grants, travel opportunities, team play, all kinds of things. So yeah, I'm sure I'm leaving somebody off and I'm, we're going to end this and I'm going to kick myself. But I, I again, go to parentingaces.com and look at our partner scroll and follow all those people. There you go. Good save. <laughs> No, no, you did a great job uh, <laughs> mentioning, you know, all the great individuals and entities that uh, contribute. So just obviously want to, again, mention, you know, your podcast and, you know, encourage everybody to check it out. So can you talk again, about, you know, about your podcast and, you know, who it might be best suited for and any other details you'd like to share? Sure. Thank you for so the Parenting Aces podcast, first of all, is available on pretty much all podcast apps. We since COVID started, we've been doing a video version of the podcast each week. And you can find the video version on parentingaces.com and on the Parenting Aces YouTube channel. So if you like to put a face to a voice, I encourage you to check out the video versions of the ones over the last year for sure. And I don't see that we're going to stop doing the video versions. I enjoy it because then I have a face to put to a voice too, which makes for a better connection. I think the podcast is really there for tennis parents, junior coaches, college coaches, and junior players and college players who are looking to get educated. So, you know, our guest list includes everything from a variety of junior coaches, a variety of tennis parents, a variety of college coaches, uh, and, um, sports psychologists, nutritionists, fitness experts, um, college recruiting experts. I mean, we really try to cover everything having to do with the entire junior tennis journey, moving from entry level into tennis through juniors into college and then beyond and, you know, making that transition from either juniors or college to the pro tour. So, you know, we're here for everybody. And we like to say that we are giving tennis parents a voice, whether it's actually getting to sit at the table. And, and I will say for the first few years that I was doing parenting aces, I had a lot of frustration because I felt like USTA wasn't engaging with me. They weren't paying much attention to what I was doing. And I felt like I had a lot to offer them, not based on what I had to say or my knowledge, which was very limited, but rather on what my podcast guests and people who were writing articles for our website what they had to say. And I thought that was, you know, a missed opportunity for USTA. In recent years, though, USTA has offered me a seat at the table, and I have had the opportunity to sit down with them and, and contribute, whether it's offering my opinion, whether it's acting as a go-between, especially now with this new system that they launched in January. I have tried to help the Parenting Aces audience navigate through issues that they're having, acting as their go-between with USTA and, and 
getting them answers, hopefully, not always, but I try my best. And so, yeah, I, I just feel like, you know, there was a missing piece to the tennis community and the tennis education community. And it was that piece for parents. And so hopefully Parenting Aces has filled that gap. Yeah, for sure. You've done a great job. And as I mentioned, you know, so consistent and, you know, amazing interviews. And actually, is there one particular episode that you might point people to to check out out of, you know, either your recent ones or just any any of them that just stick out to you? I two that I'm going to recommend. The first one is an interview that I did with Tracy Austin a few years ago, and it's still one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. Hopefully your listeners know Tracy. Tracy not only was, you know, a top professional player starting at a very young age, but is now the parent to some really good tennis players and her son Brandon played at USC and had a tremendous tennis career at USC. Um, She has another son playing at USC now and she offered some great advice in that conversation and it's it's one of my favorites I've done. The other one and this may sound a little self-serving but I'm going to say it anyway is the podcast that I did with my son in the summer of 2020 and years, I had been asking him to come on the podcast and talk about his experience growing up as a junior player, going through college recruiting, playing in college, and then making the decision after his sophomore year to leave tennis behind and just focus solely on on being a student in college and graduating. And for years, he put me off. And finally, he agreed to come on the podcast It is a very raw and honest and sometimes difficult to listen to interview, but I, I feel like pretty much everybody who, who watches that one, and I would encourage you to watch the video version of it. Everyone who watches that one has thanked me and said, you know, it was really helpful to hear from somebody who had the things that worked and the things that didn't work for him along the way. And, and also to see the relationship between my son and me, I think was also very valuable. It has been very valuable for people to help them understand why that needs to be the most important thing in all of this. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get the link to those episodes and share them in the show notes page and in the app and whatnot. So, so that, that's great. Thanks for suggesting those episodes. As, as far as like resources and books, like I, I know you obviously have a lot of great resources that you've, you've mentioned, but are there any books that you would suggest maybe two or three books that maybe would be particularly helpful for juniors or college tennis players or parents? I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot. We actually have a Parenting Aces shop on Amazon.com. So all of my favorite books are in our shop on Amazon. So people can, can check that out. And, you know, yes, we may get a, a few cent commission on that. So I have to throw that out. But if you're looking for you know, ideas of books to read yourself as a parent or to suggest or buy as a gift for your junior player or college player. That's a great resource for that. Gosh, if I had to pick, I I don't know if I can pick favorites. There's so many good ones. I mean, obviously kind of the Bibles are the inner game of tennis. I think that's a must read for every 
tennis parent and every tennis player and, and every tennis coach obviously should read that too. Winning Ugly, I think, was one of those that was really helpful for me as a parent to read and understand. I learned a lot from Brad Gilbert and I appreciated that book quite a bit. For my son, reading Andre Agassi's autobiography was super helpful. My son is not a reader, has never been a reader, but that is one of a handful of books that he has read in his life, and it really had an impact on him. So I think that's that's a good one to read. I mean, I, I you're catching me off guard. I haven't had a chance to think about this. But again, I would point people to to our shop on Amazon. And if you go to parentingaces.com and scroll down to the bottom, there's actually a link to click to get to our shop. So we, we try to make it real easy for you. Awesome. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, and we'll link to the shop as well. That's great. And, and the books you mentioned, uh, all classics, really great ones. So Lisa, I, I hear that you have uh, some new merch as well, which I've been thinking about that myself. You know, I've, I've in the past, I've just like created some or not created, but put out some T-shirts and all that. But uh, talk to us about the merch. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. 10 years down the road, finally, I'm selling merch on the site. We launched a new website in January. We have a new logo. We kind of rebranded. And so we thought it would be a good idea to go ahead and create some merch and put it up on the site and make it available to all the parents and coaches and players out there that might want to rock the Parenting Aces logo. So if you go to parentingaces.com, you'll see the shop link at the top of the page. And right now we just have a few things to offer. We have a women's tank. We have unisex short sleeve and long sleeve shirts. All of those are made of performance fabric. So they're great to play and train in. And then we also have a hat with the logo on it. And yeah, so I'm excited. We'll be out. And if you see me at events, I'm sure I'll be wearing my Parenting Aces hat. It'll be a great way to recognize me for the parents out there who, you know, want to chat or want to do an interview. I'll, I'll be the one with the orange logo on my, on my head. Awesome, Lisa. Yeah, definitely encourage everybody to check the merch out. I, I do like the logo and, and the, the artwork and also the artwork on your podcast. So it looks good. So we'll we'll get some people to, to check it out. Hopefully people who are listening. So thanks for letting us know about that. Yeah. And one more thing I forgot to say that if you are a premium member of Parenting Aces, which we have a couple options for that, you get free shipping on the merch every day. So another incentive to become a premium member of our site. Nice. Yeah. Free shipping, you know, it's it's really important. Like a, a lot of times I'll pass on <laughs> buying things if I don't get free shipping, like for whatever reason. But I mean, I won't always do that, but it, it's a nice perk for sure. So, and yeah, I, I saw that you have like a, a membership site and everything, which has a lot of great value in that. So that, that that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> So where can we go to follow you? You know, I, I know you mentioned your website, but like, I mean, any other places or any social media handles that you want to shout out for us to check out? Yeah, we're everywhere. <laughs> we have on Facebook, we have a Parenting Aces page. So it's just Facebook, facebook.com slash Parenting Aces. But in addition to our page on Facebook, we actually have two groups as well. And they're both closed private groups. One is just the Parenting Aces tennis group. And that is open to parents, to players, to coaches, to people in the industry, pretty much anybody that's involved in tennis that wants to engage in conversation around tennis. And then we also have a tennis parents only group on Facebook that is 
close to anyone who is involved in the industry at all. If you're a coach and you work with kids other than your own kids, you're not going to be allowed into that group. If you are a business or you are a federation or anything like that, sorry, that's not the group for you. It is limited strictly to tennis parents because we wanted to give the parents a safe place to have conversations without fear of retribution or judgment from tournament directors or federations or sponsors or any of that stuff. So that's for the parents only. We're also on Twitter at Parenting Aces. We're on Instagram at Parenting Aces. Um, haven't taken the TikTok dive. I just can't go Come there. <laughs> no, I just can't do it. Can't do it. And then our website and obviously our YouTube channel uh, as well. So I, I hope you'll follow us everywhere. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're trying to grow our subscriber base there. And we we try to keep the content fresh on all the channels. That's always the challenge, right? I'm a one woman show and, you know, trying to make sure that I have differentiated content on the various social channels is, is I'm fortunate that I'm going to be able to attend the upcoming ITF and the Easter Bowl down in San Diego over the next couple of weeks. And so we're going to be throwing up some content, some video content fresh from those events. And that will likely be on our Instagram. We'll probably do some Instagram live. We may do some Facebook live as well. Who knows? I haven't figured it all out yet. Um, trying to feel out the event. It's kind of my my first foray back since COVID and trying to figure out how it's all going to work with interviews and masks and all of that. So my husband was like, how are you going to interview people and be socially distanced? And I'm like, hmm, yeah, that's going to be a real challenge. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but I'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, you figured out a lot of things related to this. So I'm sure you will, you know, make find a way to do it. So great stuff there. Elise, it's a fun question. If you could put up a billboard on the most highly trafficked street in your area and you could write a message on it, what would you put on it? Just anything or tennis related? I would say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's tough. I'm going to just go with something very general that's near and dear to my heart and that is love each other. I like it. I love it, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's that's important. Very important. Love is, it is. is huge. Uh, okay, great. And the last question for you that I close with is, you know, you've given us a lot of amazing advice today about junior and college tennis and, and parenting. But what is one key tip that you can give us to, to close to, to help us, you know, just either become better parents or help us in our journey to become a better junior or college tennis player? You are not your ranking. Your kid is not your kid's ranking. <laughs> you are a human being first and a tennis player second. So keep the focus on becoming a better human every single day and becoming a better tennis player will follow. I love it. Yeah, that's that's such a great advice. I had a couple mental game experts on and you know one of the problems with players is that they attach their self-worth to uh, you know how they're doing in tennis so if they lose and they're like a worse human being which is not the way to do it obviously and you know there's a lot there's a life outside of tennis and I mean you even hear the pros say it too you know like oh tennis is just one small part of life so I love that you close with that piece of advice and 
Yeah, I just want to thank you, Lisa, and acknowledge all your efforts. And it, it's been really great what you've done for parents and players and the tennis community once again. So thanks for all of that. And looking forward to touching base again soon and to listening to the podcast and, and reading all the stuff you're putting out. So thanks again for all your efforts. Thanks for having me on, Mayor Bond. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll have to get you on the Parenting Aces podcast next. Ooh, that would be fun. Definitely anytime, just let me know. But thanks again, Lisa, and have a great day. Same to you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.